morning. It's good to be here with you. And again, as pastor said, thank you for being faithful. I realize this is a holiday season. And for many of you parents this morning, you are rejoicing because we only have two weeks left of school holidays. And soon, soon you will have the house free and relatively clean again. But for the next two weeks, please endure. Keep moving forward with patience. And we will get there in the end. But this morning, we're going to start a study into the letter of James. And we're going to work through that across this year as I have opportunity to preach. And as we begin this study in the letter from James, we learn very quickly that this letter is very practical in nature. This is a practical letter. The emphasis of this letter is not on becoming Christians, but rather is on behaving as Christians. This is a letter of maturity. We find that in the 108 verses that are in this letter, there are imperatives throughout the text. Across the entire letter, there are imperatives. Let me give you one or two or maybe even three examples. Look at verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, and if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That's an imperative. Do this. Verse 19, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Again, that's an imperative. He says, I want you to listen up. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. Don't show favoritism. Perhaps we could say that this letter is the New Testament equivalent of Proverbs. It's direct. It's to the point. And unlike many other books in the New Testament, it's not dealing with doctrinal issues. This is dealing with foundational issues that we have as believers. Life issues. Now, as we start this letter, we need to understand the context. And you know me by now. You understand that often context is, is what I bring into it first. And we have to understand the context, particularly now that we're starting this book and we're going to work through it. We need to understand the who's, who wrote it, who did he write it to, why did he write it, what is he writing about, what issues is he dealing with. All those details that we so often skip over, but details that are vital to our understanding and our interpretation of the text. I had a teacher in Bible school and he used to say, if you take the text out of context, you're only left with a con. And this morning, we want to make sure that we have the context. So let's pray and then let's dig in and see what we have here this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father. Father, again, we come before you. 
Father, we now prepare our hearts to receive your words. Father, so that we can apply them to our lives and we can take them away and then we can teach them. And so, Father, now this morning, just for a moment, we pause and I'd ask you individually this morning, just take the next moment and just prepare your heart for what it is that God would have for you. Father, we are grateful that you continue to work in us. Father, that you love us so much that you continue to mould us and to shape us in the image of your Son. So, Father, now as we study your word, as we read from Scripture and as we study this together, I pray that, Father, we would desire to apply it to our lives. These would not just be words, but we would apply. Father, again, thank you. We love you in your name, amen. So let's go ahead and turn to James chapter 1 with me, if you're not already there, James chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. It says here, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let no man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. From the outset of this letter, we see that the author is James. He describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we'll talk about who he's writing to in just a moment. But the first question that arises, the first question that should come into our minds as we attempt to, to grasp the context of this letter, who's James? Which James? Often we think of James, the brother of John. Jesus describes them as the sons of thunder, and maybe it's this James. But James, the brother of John, was martyred in AD 44. We see that in Acts 12, verse 2. But scholars believe that this book of James was written sometime between 48 and 50. So it can't be James, the brother of John... It can't be that, James. We could safely say that the author is James, the brother of Jesus. So maybe you'd say, that's really interesting, Phil, but why is it important? Why does it matter? Because if we skip over this detail, 
We take the book out of context. And we miss some of the beautiful moments and the opportunities that we have to learn from the brother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at this introduction again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if he's the brother of Jesus, why doesn't he just say that up front? Why doesn't he he lead with his best foot? Why doesn't he just lay out his credentials straight out there right at the beginning? Because to be honest, that's what we would do, wouldn't it? Straight away, I'd be going, hey, I'm James. I'm the brother of Jesus. You remember that guy? That's me. James doesn't do that, and here's why. And we can learn from this because James understood the importance. He understood the significance of his relationship with Jesus did not lie in the fact that they shared the same birth mother. That wasn't the significance in their relationship. It's not a brotherly relationship that causes James to marvel at who Jesus was. This isn't a younger brother in awe of his older brother's success. In fact, if you remember, if you look at John 1.11, we see that his own received him not. During Jesus' ministry on earth, his own, his family, they didn't receive him. They rejected him. Again, in John 7, verse 5, we're told that Jesus' brothers and his families didn't believe in him. Have you ever thought about the fact that Mary had to get saved? His own mother? That his family, that his brothers had to get saved? His family's rejected him. And when we come into Matthew 10, it makes it a little bit more personal when Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be that of his own household. I think that was personal when Jesus said that. His own family have rejected him. For James, the brother of Jesus, it wasn't the blood of family that drew him to Jesus. It was the blood of the cross of Calvary and the goodness of God in opening James's eyes to understand that Jesus was the person that he declared himself to be. That's what made the difference for James. Jesus was more than just his blood brother. He was the Messiah. Isn't it amazing that at that point in history, so many people were coming to the point of of believing in Jesus. So many people were placing their faith in what Jesus was doing. 
So many people were becoming Jesus followers, Christians, and yet those closest to him, those people that, that grew up with him, that lived with him, had rejected him. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, when he's talking about the resurrection, points out that in one of the resurrection appearances, Jesus comes to his brother, James. By the time you get to Acts chapter 15, this same James, the brother of Jesus, is at the very heart of the church in Jerusalem. He's pastoring in the church in Jerusalem. There's been a transition in his life where it's no longer about being a blood brother. Now it's about Jesus, my Messiah. And we could spend a lot of time developing this further, but, but I think you get the point. This is the brother of Jesus, and he didn't believe in Jesus until after Jesus had died and risen again. Instead of describing himself as the brother, brother of Jesus, he describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant, or more precisely, a bond servant. Bound to Christ in devotion and in love, committed to the furtherance of the gospel. Bound to Christ. We see Paul describe himself in the same way, and we see Peter describe himself in that same way as well. Now, before you misinterpret this, and before we start to think that maybe the Bible is condoning slavery, that's not what we're talking about here. Understand this the simple fact is that spiritually, everyone is a servant. Everyone is a slave to something, spiritually. As an unbeliever, I am a slave to sin. I have no choice in that matter. I am a servant to sin. I am bound to sin. But in Christ, that picture changes. Have a look at John 8, verse 34. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is a servant to sin. Whosoever committeth sin is a servant to sin, is bound to sin, is a slave to sin. Romans 6.17, But God be thanked that ye were servants to sin, but have obeyed from their heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Servants to sin, slaves to sin. Same word, servant, doulos, a slave to sin. But then we come to Romans 6, verse 18. Being then made free from sin. Ye became the servants of righteousness. Salvation frees us from servitude, from slavery to sin. In fact, it's the only thing that saves us from that slavery. There's nothing I can do, there's nothing that I bring, not my good works, not my actions, not the life that I have lived, not my, my 
family tree, none of that contributes to my salvation. It's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. James has grabbed hold of this title of servant, of of bondservant, because it references submission to Christ. It references his submission to Christ's ownership over his life, not just because they're brothers. Just like a master paid the price to purchase a slave, Jesus Christ came and purchased James's life. He purchased our lives with his blood. James recognized that he was no longer a bondservant to sin, but a bondservant to Jesus Christ. And just as James, we as believers are bound to a perfect, loving, gracious master. Final detail that I want you to see this morning as we explore the context of this letter is who he's writing to. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And we're going to explore this a little bit more as we dive into the meat of this letter, but in Acts 8, we see persecution and the church scattered. And it's to these believers scattered throughout that region that he's writing this letter. He's writing it as a a pastor to people that he knows. So now let's jump in with both feet because this is a letter of maturity and James gets straight to the point. Where so often we see Paul, we see Peter, we see other other writers, they padded a little bit, they give you a little bit of grace period in the beginning, they flowered up a little bit. James comes straight to the point. Verse 2, my brethren, my brothers, fellow believers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He's getting straight to the point. The word temptations here literally means trials, hardships, Tribulation. My brothers in Christ, count it all joy when you fall into trials that drive you to dependence on Christ. When you fall into trials that grow your maturity as a child of God. There's some key words here that I want you to latch on to in these first seven verses. Uh, Maybe underline them or circle them or whatever it is that you do within your Bible. Highlight them. Pay attention to these key words. In verse 2, it says, count. Count it all joy. In verse 3, it says, knowing. Knowing this. In verse 4, it says, let. Let patience. And then in verses 5 and 6, it says, ask God. Ask in faith. Count, knowing, let Ask. Verse 2, count it all joy. As you would perhaps expect 
The word count here is an accounting term. It means to consider carefully, to make a judgment of value, not based on emotions or feeling, but based on facts. Consider this based on the facts. Count it all joy. So what's James saying? He's saying, weigh it up, make a non-emotional judgment of the trial. There's value in what's happening. Now, uh, to be honest with you, uh, it's not very often that we do that, is that? When we're in the, the thick of it, when we're in the trial, when we're in the hardship, it's our emotions that drive the way that we think about the trial. But James is saying, step back from it, look at it for what it is, look at the facts of how God is using this to mold you and to shape you and to conform you into the image of His Son. But while I'm emotionally invested in that, I can't see it like that. Count it all joy. Paul uses the same wording in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. In other words, I've carefully weighed it up. I've proven it. The value of the knowledge of Christ is far greater than that of what I've lost. The value gained from the trial is far greater than I would have gained without the trial. And all of it is far greater than what I had before. Weigh it up. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1 verse 7. Is that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth? Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. If we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to grow in spiritual maturity, we must understand what James, what Paul, what Peter's point. These men drive home the fact that there is great value in our relationship with Christ, but there is also great value in the trials that we go through for Christ. James's heart for these scattered believers, don't give up. I know you're living in a strange land. You're surrounded by other cultures, other beliefs, other languages. I know there are pressures to just fit in, to just conform, to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Don't give up. In fact, weigh it up. Weigh up what you are going through and rejoice in what you have in Christ. Rejoice because you are living for what matters most. Rejoice because the hardship, the trial, produces something great in you. Now look at the next verse and we'll see where the value in those trials lies. Verse 3, he says, Knowing this, 
that the trying of your faith worketh patience, it worketh endurance. I want you to look at the tense here. It's not know this, it's knowing this. It's knowledge they've already gained through experience. It's knowledge that they've already gained through something they went through before. You already know that the trying, that the the testing, that the proving of your faith exercises patience. It, It works patience. It proves that patience. It works endurance. So the question is, what experience have these believers had that forced them to rely on God? What experience... Have these believers that James is writing to, what have they already gone through that's tried their faith? What have they been through that they can look back on and say, God is good? Yes, it was hard, but I can rejoice in the work of God. I grew in maturity and we saw God working despite that hardship. Turn with me to Acts We'll look at verse, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 first, and then we'll flip across to chapter 11. So Acts 8, and here we'll see some historic context for these believers and what they've already endured. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. We're talking about Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they were scattered abroad and went everywhere. And what's the next part say? Preaching the word. Preaching the word. Have a look now at Acts 11, verse 19. James is writing to a church that's been persecuted and scattered And we're looking at some of the context of that. Acts 11, verse 19. Now they which are scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phineas and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. They'd been persecuted. They'd been scattered from their homeland, from their traditional lands, from the place where generationally they could have a home and land and food and crops and animals and the people next door, they knew them. And there's this generational thing there and they're scattered from that. They're persecuted, but they remained faithful. And because of that faithfulness, there was fruit. Come back to the text, and now some 10-ish years later, 
After they've been scattered, James is writing to these believers and he's reminding them, stay the course. Keep growing in maturity. You endured through the persecution and you fled, but you continue to trust God and to teach the word. And even though you were scattered, even though you're in foreign lands, God blessed that faithfulness and many people got saved. He says, friends, don't surrender to the pressures around you. Stay the course. Let me remind you of this. You already know it. The trying, the testing, the proving of your faith brings about patience. It works patience. It works endurance. You already know this, but those hardships result in endurance. They result in spiritual maturity. And we here at Good Shepherd, we've talked about this before. We've talked about it and we've heard about it in in the preaching and the teaching of God's Word as we've celebrated anniversaries and milestones. And if James were writing directly to us, he'd say the very same thing. Yes, you've, you've gone through hardships, Good Shepherd. But you know this to be true. God has blessed your faithfulness in the past and as you've continued to be faithful, as you continue as a church to walk by faith, to to expand your boundaries, and as faith is tested, as our legislation in this country changes, as the, the society that we live in shifts and slides further and further away from the, the biblical truths that we hold true to. God hasn't changed. His lessons, His truth, His goodness to us hasn't changed. But friends, there's still work to do in our maturity as believers. We cannot stop and stagnate. We must continue to push forward and to mature spiritually. Good shepherd, believer here this morning, the trying of your faith worketh patience. James doesn't stop there, and the next key word we see here is let. Verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work. You may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word let, in this we have a picture of surrender. To submit to the will of God. We saw Submission in the description that James had of himself as a servant. And now he's saying that as believers, we must continue to submit to the will of God. Not surrender to the pressures of the world that surrounds us. Not surrendering to the culture. Surrendering to the... Not surrendering to the watering down of the gospel. Not surrendering to the desire to just fit in. Keep enduring, keep pressing forward, keep trusting God so that he can continue to refine you, so that he can continue to complete you in him. 
Submit to God's process of maturing you as a believer. That's what he's saying to this church. And as believers here at Good Shepherd, we know that our citizenship is in heaven. We too are foreigners, we're strangers here. The culture here in Brisbane is often at opposition to the culture that we as believers are meant to conform to. There is a continual attempt to water down the gospel, to water down the word of God, to just fit in, to look like everybody else, to act like everybody else. The question that we're not asking which we should be asking, is how does the world, how does Brisbane, how does Albany Creek see us? How do the people in our schools, the people in our workplaces see us differently? Do we stand out? Do you stand out? Does your lifestyle honor God or does it just help you blend in? Does the way that you speak, does what you speak about cause people to wonder what is different? Does the way that you dress glorify God first? Or does it just make you feel good around your friends, around your coworkers? Do the people that you hang out with, does the way that you drive your car, do the movies that you go to, do the conversations that you have, that you get into around the coffee machine, does the lifestyle that you lead, does it say to unbelievers, this guy, this lady is different? Or do you just look like everybody else? Trying to blend into the crowd. As believers, we are meant to stand out. There's meant to be something different. So where do we stand? Where do you stand? Let's keep moving, verse 4, but patience... Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect, complete. You may be the complete picture, an entire wanting nothing. The result of that patience, the result of enduring is that through these experiences, through trusting God and walking in faith in these trials, we become more complete, we become more Christ-like. A process that we often call progressive sanctification. A process by which God conforms us to the image of His Son. Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with open face behold it, as in a glass the glory of the Lord and are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is conforming us to the image of His Son. But are we resisting that? 
Are we fighting that? Are we looking at the trials emotionally? Are we looking at the hardships based on our, our feelings? And going, I just don't, I don't want to be in this anymore. I don't want anything to do with this. Or are we allowing God to mold us and to shape us and to conform us into who we should be? So as we get into verse 4, James has been driving home the point of enduring through hardship, enduring through trials. He says, don't give up, keep going, keep pushing forward. Rejoice in those trials. Why? Because it grows your faith. It matures you as a believer. It helps you to become more Christ-like. And then we get to verse 5, and James reminds these believers that they are not in this alone. You're not in it alone. There's no expectation that they will have to just figure it out themselves. Look at what he says. These are commonly known verses, and here we see the, the fourth key word in our passages today. He says, ask. Ask. James 1 verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. For he that wavereth is a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Ask. Two things that stand out to me here. Ask of God and ask in faith. Let him ask of God. There's a submission there. I'm acknowledging that I don't have the wisdom to deal with this, but God does. I don't have everything laid out to know how to best deal with this, but God does. And God wants to be part of it. Again, keep this in context. He's talking to believers that are separated from their traditional lands, who are not just away from home on a holiday. They've moved to a foreign country. They're going to require wisdom to navigate the, the cultural differences, the financial differences, the food differences. They're going to navigate the differences between the religions. They need wisdom to ensure that they are living a life that is glorifying to God. James says, ask God that giveth to all men liberally. There is no ration plan on wisdom. There is no wisdom famine. God gives liberally. And upbraideth not. He doesn't rebuke. He doesn't chastise those who are asking for wisdom. So often when our children come to us and they've asked us the same question several times, we're very quick to say, how many times have I told you this? Just get it right. Write it down somewhere. Do something with it because I've told you and I'm sick of telling you the same thing over and over again. Now that's not me as a dad because I'm a, I'm a perfect dad. We, we do that, don't we? God gives liberally and uprighteth not. 
He doesn't rebuke, he doesn't chastise when we go to him asking for wisdom. Ask in faith without any hesitation that what you are asking for is right. God, I'm I'm trusting you in this. I know that you have a plan. I know this is right. And I can see all the options that the world is offering. And I know that, that this is right. God, please give me the wisdom to deal with this in a manner that glorifies you. And finally, there's a warning here. In James, 5 again, James 1 verse 5 again, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God to give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. That word wavereth is to be at variance with oneself, to hesitate to be conflicted. Here James uses an illustration of a wave driven by the wind and the wave has no control of itself. It goes where the wind drives. Similarly, a believer that is shallow in their faith. Perhaps they know what is right because there's other, other Christians around them and they're giving them counsel. But they're shallow in their faith They know what's meant to be done, but they also see what the world is offering. And because there is no depth, because there is no substance to their faith, to their relationship with God, they waver. They hesitate. And Paul addresses this in Ephesians Ephesians 4.14. He says, We henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Don't be a child that's caught up in every new thing that comes in and pulls you astray. Be solid on what the Word of God says. Friends, there's a battle for our mind, and and again, we've talked about this in church. It's a battle for our mind in Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. If we're not spending time in God's word, how are we going to know when something's not right? Instead of making a stand, instead of drawing the line in the sand, the immature believer The believer that has no substance to their faith is drawn into indecision because of where their heart is at. James warns these believers, he says, don't be lukewarm. Be mature in your faith. Be consistent in your walk with God. Be growing in your knowledge of God and His Word. Because if you're not... We all know that our actions are influenced by our hearts. And if our hearts are not being influenced by the Word of God, they're being influenced by something else. Now look at these last two verses with me and then let's just bring some application as we close things out. Verse 6 again, But let him that ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, 
But let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In verse 6, we are told to ask with nothing wavering. Look at verse 7. For let not that man, the man that is wavering, think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Literally, the man whose mind is divided between the things of God and the passion, the vices, the options of the world. I think we'd all agree this morning that the value in wisdom lies in where the wisdom comes from. And then what we do with that wisdom. And when a believer is wavering, he fails to understand the point of seeking wisdom from God. The point of that wisdom is to help him deal with the situation in a manner that is most glorifying to God. Not simply to get through the situation. A mind that is wavering, a mind that is shallow, what good is wisdom to that person? Notice again, he's writing to believers that are struggling, that are undergoing trials, that are facing a world that is offering them so much else. And he says... Ask for wisdom, but don't waver. Stay true to the Word of God. Don't be torn between what you know is right and what the world is offering. That's foolishness. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Go ahead and turn there. You know these verses. Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Verse 7, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. If the believer is wavering, if he's weighing up between what he knows to be biblical and what he can see in the, in the Word of God and, and a confusion with what he sees in the world, he's bringing his own wisdom based on emotion, based on experience, based on pleasure into the picture. The Bible tells us, be not wise in thine own eyes. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. So let's wrap up with some conclusion, with some application for us here at Good Shepherd. Yes, this is written to believers many years ago, but like those believers, we live in a world that is pressing us to water down the truth. A world that is telling us that it is okay to compromise on the standards that God has set out in His Word. Look at verse 2 again. And notice it doesn't say, count it all joy if. It says, count it all joy Friends, trials will occur. 
trials are going to occur. Hardship is going to happen. And as Paul says in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica in verses 4 through 5 of chapter 1, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. The world says that it is an unloving God that allows trials. The world tells us it's an unloving God that allows hardship into your life. The world tells us that it is an unloving God that allows pain. We as believers know that the God of love allows these things into our lives for His glory and for our growth in maturity and for our good. So what do we do? First thing, learn to recognize the value in the trial Learn to recognize the value in the trial and rejoice. There's value in that trial and rejoice in the value. Let me paint you a picture just for a moment. Imagine, if you will, for me, that the most influential, the most effective coach in the world in your chosen discipline that that coach singles you out and he comes alongside of you and says, hey, I want to work with you. I want to, I want to grow you. I want to mature you. I want to take this discipline. It doesn't matter what the discipline is. It could be something in sport. It could be music. It could be science. It could be finances. It could be ministry. This coach, the greatest in the world, singled you out to coach you in whatever that is for you. And he sits down with you and he says, I want to I coach you in this. I want to discipline in this. I want you to be the very best at this. But it's going to take hardship. It's going to take you sacrificing some things that you love. It's going to take you getting up in the morning it means that you're going to wake up some days and your muscles are going to be sore and you're going to question, why am I doing this? Why do I continue to put myself into this hard position, this hardship? Why? And the coach says, just trust me. I know the beginning of this process and I know the end. And I know what you can be if you allow me to work in your life, if you're willing to put yourself in those hard positions and you allow me to work through those hard positions. Just trust me. You'd be excited. If that coach came to you, the coach that you've looked at and idolized and you've seen what he produces and he said to you, I want you, despite the fact that there's going to be pain, despite the fact that you're going to make sacrifices, despite the fact that you're going to have to get up early in the morning and you stay late at night, you want to do it because the greatest coach in the world chose you to do that. Now let's put this into perspective of 
the God of all gods, the creator of the universe, the God who is love, who is interested in the details of your life, and he says, yes, you're going to go through hardships, but I am conforming you and I am molding you and I am shaping you into who you should be. So trust me in this. If we're going to mature as believers, we need to recognize the value in those hardships and in those trials, and we need to rejoice. Because the King of kings, the God of gods, the Lord of lords is working on you. Now that's something to rejoice about. Second thing I want you to take home this morning, ask for wisdom in that trial. Ask for wisdom in that trial. Understand this, the wisdom that we need is not merely wisdom to get through the trial. This is not just me saying, God, please hurry this up. I just want to get out of this. Give me wisdom and how to get out of this situation. God, uh, if that's the direction that we are going, then our perspective of the trial is wrong. And if our perspective of the trial is wrong, it's because our perspective of God is wrong. And if our perspective of God is wrong, it's because we believe something we shouldn't be believing. The victory in the trial is not just making it to the other side. And the wisdom that we need is wisdom that helps us as believers to use the circumstances of that trial to bring glory to God. God, in this trial, show me how to better glorify you. God, in this trial, show others, give me an opportunity to talk to others about you. So you've already recognized that there's value in the trial and, and there's Somewhere to go to ask for wisdom. The last one I want you to take away this morning, don't waver in the trial. Don't waver in the trial or that wisdom is pointless. Know the Word of God. Be passionate about the Word of God. Be passionate about your relationship with God. Allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to guide you, to guide your steps. Allow the Word of God to provide you with counsel on how to deal with situations. So when you ask for wisdom in faith, and when you're in that trial, trusting God, you don't waver. I don't waver because I know that God is for me, because I spend time in God's Word. I know that God is for me because I spend time in prayer and I spend time submitted to Him. You're not looking at the world and saying to yourself, that would be so much easier. That would be so much more fun. That would be so much more pleasurable. Don't waver in the trial. Or that wisdom is pointless. Friends, this morning, learn to recognize the value in the trials. Ask for wisdom in the trials. And don't waver in the trials.
Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father. Father, so often in the complexity of our lives, we just want a way out. We just want it to get easier. We just want some, something that's going to take away that burden, that hurt, that time. And God, instead of coming to you and asking for wisdom, and, and God, instead of coming to you and going, God, how do I, how do, I do this and, and glorify you, Father? We look to our own emotions. We look to that which is happening around us. We start to wander in our minds. So, Father, this morning I pray that we would be in your word. Father, we would be passionate about your word. And as we're passionate about your word, our hearts would change. Father, we would desire to be in that relationship with you that is so close that as we struggle through these trials, we would go nowhere else but to you for wisdom. Father, you are good to us continually. And your plan for us doesn't change. Father, you desire to mold us and to shape us into the image of your son and who we should be. So, Father, this morning I pray that our hearts would be tender and, Father, we would submit to you. So, Father, you are good. In your name, amen.